Hey, good morning. My name is Paul Ramsey. It's a joy to be with you. And, uh, and Taylor, it's an honor uh, to have been invited to come preach um, the word to you this morning. It's an honor to be standing in front of you. Uh, and I, uh, like Taylor said, um, it really needs no explanation here. Uh, but as a church planting resident, the, the thought of getting to pray about where God might lead us uh, what neighborhood of Houston God might place us in and gather a people to, to establish a new worshiping uh, family of believers. Um, the thought uh, and the prayer of that is just is so is almost overwhelming uh, to think that God is continuing his work that he started uh, uh, when he created the universe, really. Uh, he's continuing this work and he's invited us to be a part of it. And so it's a joy to be with you, an honor uh, to be preaching the word to you. Um, and if I... Uh, if I walk off the stage unannounced, it's because my wife has given me the signal. We haven't really agreed on what the signal is going to be, but I think we'll all know. Uh, and so, Lord willing, uh, we'll, we'll, let's look into this text uh, for the fullness of the time that we've been given. Um, let's get started. It says, eating at a restaurant uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago now uh, that I've eaten at a number of times. I'm sure you, you might have had an experience like this, and I got the same meal that I order. Uh, usually when I go to this restaurant, and I thought, you know, I, I don't know that I'm ever going to order this again, uh, because it struck me that, it, you know, this isn't, it's not as satisfying as it once was. It's not as fulfilling uh, as the first time I ordered it. And while I don't think that's really a big deal, you know, what meal you order uh, at a restaurant, it struck me that I think this points to a much deeper reality. Uh, the, the reality that deep down, not only do I want to be satisfied, uh, but I need to be satisfied. I need to be content. And I think that this need uh, is, uh, this need for contentment is a need that we all share. We all share the need for contentment. I think we see this uh, in how, in many ways, our search for contentment is what, uh, is what kind of guides our lives. We see it in little ways uh, in terms of the meals that we order. We also see it in big ways. Uh, the decisions we make of where to live or what career to pursue or what, uh, what person to marry. Um, and as we live our lives, in, when, in many ways, uh, I think we find out that the decisions that we've made uh, don't really satisfy us in the way that we had hoped that they would. Uh, we regularly get tired of things, and this leaves us wanting. Right? We, we order one meal, and then when we get tired of it, we move on to the next one. We, we try one thing, and then when we get tired of it, we move on to the next thing. It almost feels like we're on this treadmill, uh, this treadmill, kind of living this cycle of, of always needing to get to that next thing. Uh, and I think that deep down, this leaves us with a sense of discontentment. Uh, there's something that we're missing, something that we keep thinking uh, we'll find in the next meal, the next job, the relationship, something that if we had it, Right. Whatever it is, um, if we had it, then we would have to stop. We would stop having to search for it. Uh, and so eventually, I think everyone comes to asking this question. Uh, many times, I think, throughout our lives, we ask the question, uh, when will I find it? Right. When will I truly be content? Or sometimes that question becomes, um, is it right? Is it even out there? Uh, or should I just grow up and stop chasing rainbows? Um, and to that question... To that question, I would argue that yes, it is out there. Uh, and I think that, that it is what this text is talking about, that we all have this desire for something beyond the things that ordinary life can give us. Uh, we try to run from it sometimes. We try to explain it away, but it's there. And in this text, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger again. I am it, right? So come to me. As we look in to this text, I want to give us uh, some context for the passage. John 
the book of John, you've probably uh, heard, the, the book of John is the fourth gospel the, that starts the New Testament. You, you might know that, uh, you probably know the, the Bible is divided into two main parts. The Old Testament tells the story of uh, Israel, the story of the Jews, tells the story of the creation of the universe, creation of man, uh, mankind, and it tells the story of the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, uh, who in the Garden of Eden uh, chose to eat fruit rather than obey God, and so they broke uh, this relationship with God. Uh, but the Old Testament tells this story that God didn't end the story there, right? He promised Adam and Eve sinned, committed the first sin, but God doesn't end the story. He promises redemption. He promises one day I will send a way, I will make a way for you to be back in right relationship with me. And then the New Testament tells that story, uh, tells the story of Jesus, the one who God sent as a fulfillment of this promise of redemption. Uh, the, the, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son uh, to answer this need, to, to make us a way uh, back to right relationship with God. And so John, uh, the, one of the four Gospels, is the book um, uh, written, one of the books that's written to tell the story of Jesus' life. And we, we know from John in particular that he's writing to a diverse audience. We see this in how he writes the Gospel. He frequently explains Jewish customs for the sake of his non-Jewish readers. Uh, he frequently explains how Jesus is the Old Testament Messiah, for the sake of his Jewish readers. Um, and he also goes to great length to explain the incarnation of Christ, how Jesus is the word made flesh, come to dwell here with us for the sake of his Greco-Roman re- uh, listeners, for the sake of his Greco-Roman readers, the, these people who had a philosophical background that taught that the world is evil, right? the material world is evil, this life is just temporary, something that we need to escape from. Um, And so we see that John writes into this pluralistic culture, and he gives us a window into why he tells us exactly why he writes the gospel. Chapter 20, verse 31 of John, he says, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John is deeply concerned with us knowing who Jesus is. Uh, and as Taylor said last week, he, last week the sermon was on Nicodemus. Uh, Taylor described it as Jesus going straight up to Nicodemus, taking the driver's seat in the conversation. Um, Jesus here uh, is clear with his followers. He gets straight to the point. He says, I am the bread of life. Jesus is deeply concerned that we know him, that we might come to him. And while it would be impossible for us to unpack everything in this passage uh, this morning, it's a relatively long text, uh, there are a few central themes that I think we can draw out uh, as we look in together. I think we're going to see uh, three things. First, Jesus calls us to believe in him uh, as a solution for our need. The second thing we'll see is that we are deaf to this call. We're blind to who Jesus really is. And then third, we're going to see how God, through dealing with our sin, graciously draws us uh, to Christ, overcoming our problem. And so let's begin. Our text begins with verses 22 through 24, uh, explaining that there's this crowd looking for Jesus. Uh, They've been following him, and they're looking for him. If you're familiar with John 6, one of the passages that we kind of skipped past um, is the beginning of chapter 6. Jesus performs this miracle of feeding this huge crowd of people, Um, 5,000 men uh, uh, plus women and children, so probably a crowd of closer to 10,000 commentators vary on their estimates of the the number, about 10,000 people. Uh, on this mountainside who had followed Jesus without food. One, one little boy had brought five loaves of bread and two fish, and Jesus multiplies that and performs the miracle of feeding these 5,000 people. Um, and because of this miracle, because of the power that it showed that Jesus had, it records in, in verse 15 of chapter 6 that the, the people were ready to grab Jesus by force and make him their earthly king, so he withdrew. Uh, and then when the sun goes down, his disciples leave in a boat to cross the sea back to Capernaum, uh, and we see that Jesus to join his disciples, walks out on the water to join his disciples in the boat. 
uh, and then goes with them to the other side, to Capernaum. So these two miracles had just happened, feeding the 5,000, uh, and then Jesus walked on water. And then here we see that this crowd is looking for him. Uh, they had remained until the next day. It's a dedicated crowd. They left the town. They didn't bring food with them. Right? They spent the night in the wilderness. They're looking for Jesus. Um, and the first question they have when they find him in verse 25 is this. They say, Rabbi, when did you come here? They'd seen his disciples leave, but they didn't know how Jesus got there. Uh, and it's interesting to note that Jesus' response doesn't answer their question. He could have told them the nature of his crossing, uh, that he had walked on water, joined his disciples in the boat, which certainly would have impressed them. Uh, but he doesn't do that. Uh, the way that he explains, I think, shows that mere miracles by themselves can sometimes be detrimental to genuine faith. Uh, elsewhere, Jesus says, blessed are those who have believed and yet have not seen. So he knows, Jesus knows what they're really looking for, and he seeks to correct them. He says in verse 26, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the God, God the Father has set his seal. So Jesus sees that they're really looking for him because he gave them food, and he redirects them to point to the truth underlying this miracle uh, of why he fed the 5,000. Jesus explains that they had failed to see this sign, that, that this miracle was meant to point to the fact that Jesus was the story of the gospel. It was a picture of the story of the gospel, that God is raining down his grace on these people through Jesus. You see, they were hungry, though. Right? They thought that their need was just for food, but Jesus points them to the deeper need that they're not even aware of, that they're, they're working for food that will perish, not for the food that will endure to eternal life. So they're searching for something. Right? This crowd of people had followed him around, um, left their homes, spent the night out. They're, they're searching for something, but they don't know what they're searching for. And we see that they still don't understand in their response to what Jesus just said. In verse 28, they say this. They say, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Right? So Jesus had just told them that they've been working for this food that will perish, he redirects them and tells them to work instead for the food that will endure for eternal life. Uh, and then they ask him what they must do. And this is where I think we start to hear ourselves uh, in this conversation. You can almost hear their thoughts behind what they say. They say, you know, I don't have it yet. Right? I, don't, I, I haven't found it, but I can get it. When I find myself in the right job, when I find the right thing to do, then that next thing is what will give it to me. What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus' response is quick and simple. Verse 29, he says, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. It's interesting, Jesus doesn't say, there's a lot of things that Jesus could have said. Right? A lot of good things that the Bible gives is good works that can be done. Right? He could have said, love your neighbor. He could have said, care for the poor, care for widows and orphans. But he didn't. Jesus just says, believe, simply believe. You see, Jesus knew their need. He knows our need. There's this hunger that we have that nothing of this world will satisfy. A spiritual hunger that points to a gap that needs to be filled. See, ever since the Garden of Eden, ever since Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, ever since they ate that fruit and broke their relationship with God, there's been this gap, gap left by our sin, and a gap that unless it's filled, Jesus explains, will lead us to death. The food that we're working for will perish no amount of knowledge, no amount of good works, no job, no experience, no possession will fill this gap. And so Jesus points them to the solution. He points them to himself. 
He points out the futility of their striving, that they're simply working for the food that perishes, and points them instead to the food that endures to eternal life. He tells them that this, this food is the gift that only the Son of Man can give to them. Only Jesus himself is able to give them this food. Using a metaphor of bread, he points them to the true bread from heaven himself, which is what truly gives life to the world. Uh, Pastor Timothy Keller once pointed out that the metaphor of bread that Jesus gives for himself uh, is a metaphor in a couple of ways. Uh, today, when we think of a meal, we usually think of meat as the center of the meal, right? We usually think of the protein, hopefully a lean protein, right? And we think of that as the center of our meal. Um, but for them, meat wasn't as readily available. It was more of an ordeal. It was more expensive. Uh, and so instead, bread was the center of their meal. Bread, for them, was a metaphor for life and strength in, a, in, in the same way like a, a steak would be, the, would be the same thing for us. Also, uh, when Jesus talks about the bread of, of heaven, he refers back to a story from Exodus 16 uh, in the Old Testament when, when God sustains his people after leading them into the wilderness by raining down manna from heaven, uh, which is described as this light, sticky uh, kind of bread that just kind of that, that lands on the ground. Exodus 16:31 says, the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. So in talking and giving this metaphor of bread, um, Jesus is pointing them to a, uh, really uh, something that is both powerful and pleasant. It's a spiritual metaphor uh, for the kind of contentment that God offers in Jesus. I am the bread of life. Jesus saw their need and pointed, themselves to him, uh, pointed them to himself as a solution. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger again. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So we had a problem with our sin. We had a problem with sin. Jesus came to fix it. And here in this text, uh, he explains to, to his followers that all they must do is believe. So done, done and done, right? Problem solved. Not so. Um, I don't know if you've ever had, that ex had an experience where you don't believe something and you just tell yourself to believe it, right? Or you don't want to do something. You say, you know what? I'm just going to start wanting to do this. Right? It doesn't work. Words, we can't just make ourselves think something. You see, even as Jesus came to these people and sought to explain who he was uh, and that he was a solution to the problem of their sin, uh, the problem of their discontentment, uh, he knew that this problem was deeper than a simple explanation could fix. When Jesus said, do not work for the food that perishes, I think he's really pointing uh, to their real problem. And their search to fill the gap left by their sin, they're searching in the wrong places. In their pride, they're only looking to what they can see, to their worldly concerns. Remember, as soon as they find Jesus, the crowd has questions. Right? They, they want to get things figured out. Uh, let's look at their questions. In verse 25, they ask him, Rabbi, when did you come here? So they're seeking him, not because he's God, but because he provided food for them. Verse 28, they ask him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? They think that by doing works, they can earn God's favor. And so if they find out what to do, there's no... If they find out what to do, there's no doubt in their mind that they'll be able to do whatever it is. Right? Verse 30, they ask him, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? We'll talk about this a bit more in just a minute. But they think that if they see something with their own eyes, that this will be the key to helping them understand. And in verse 34, they say, sir, give us this bread always. They still don't get it. Jesus has talked about the true bread that comes from heaven that gives life to the world. And they're so focused on the gift that they completely miss the giver. So throughout this dialogue, we see that their minds are on their own understanding, on their own concerns, rather than on who Jesus really is. And let's dig a little deeper. Let's look back at verses 30 and 31. 
After Jesus tells the crowd that they must believe in him, they then say this to him. They say, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you, for, do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So they point Jesus back to the manna in the wilderness and essentially say, see, in the day of Moses, they had bread to eat. What are you going to do? Right? And it might seem uh, ridiculous uh, to say this to the guy who just fed 5,000 of you miraculously, right? But um, it's, it's actually quite unsurprising that they asked this question. You see, Jesus had just promised to provide them something better, right? something that would not perish as the manna had done in the days of Moses. As uh, there's a theologian, D.A. Carson, once observed, he said, if Jesus was superior to Moses, as his tone and claims suggest, then should not his followers be privileged to witness mightier works than those seen by the disciples of Moses? So it's not out of the question. It's not surprising that they ask him for some additional sign, something unlike a sign that they've already seen. But we know, though, uh, that Jesus doesn't grant their request. He doesn't give them another sign. Uh, In fact, he couldn't, because in so doing, he would have just been perpetuating their misunderstanding. He doesn't give them another sign because just as the people back then had, understood this, had misunderstood the sign of Moses, uh, in verse 32, he, he, rebu- he, he basically corrects them, saying it wasn't Moses who gave this bread to you. It was God from heaven. And so just as the people back then had misunderstood the sign of Moses, just 24 hours earlier, these same people who he's talking to had misunderstood the sign of feeding the 5,000. So... Um, you know, if you think back, let me, if you think back to what had happened, once they saw his power, once they saw that he could feed them miraculously, they missed the sign that pointed to his divinity and instead saw only the potential for him to be a good earthly king for them. They had been on the verge of seizing Jesus and making him their king. They were so focused on a political Messiah who would meet their needs that they had missed the point. And so Christ withdrew, rejecting their desires so as not to validate uh, and therefore perpetuate their misunderstanding of who he was and what he had come to do. And listen, I think, I think that we're not all that different from the Jews in this passage. Uh, we do, I think, this very same thing, do we not? We, we look around at the gifts that God's given to others, and we make demands of him. We say, God, if you really exist, how about you help me find a job, and then I'll know that you love me. God, if you really love me, how about you help me find a wife or a husband, and then I'll know. God, if you're really there, remove this suffering from my life so that I'll be able to believe. God, if you exist, just give me a sign so that I can see and believe. See, we, too, look at our worldly concerns, uh, our worldly needs, at the material world that we can see, and we expect for God to just show up in the way that we want him to. I remember, I remember asking God all of those things before I was saved. We're looking at the world around us. You see, similarly, back then, the Jews were so focused on their own understanding, so focused on their own concerns, that they left no room for anything to come from outside of them. They thought that all they needed to know was what to do. All they needed to know, uh, all they needed to see was, was what God showed them, some sign that, that would fit into their little paradigm of the world, and the problem of their unbelief would be fixed. They were stuck. And the problem is that in their search for an answer, even though when they were searching for contentment, Jesus says, I am this contentment. I am the bread of life. They missed it. They were stuck. They were blind to what was right in front of them. They were blinded by their own concerns, blinded by their own pride, blinded by their sin. And so they were stuck. As a man named J.B. Lightfoot once said, so long as a man remains and is content to remain confident of his own ability, 
without divine help to assess experience and the meaning of experience, he cannot come to the Lord. He cannot believe. Only the Father can move him to this step with its incalculable and final results. Their problem is their pride. Our problem uh, is our pride. As we continue to read, though, we see that God doesn't leave us stuck in our sin. He doesn't leave us without hope, but he promises to move us, to move our hearts toward Jesus. Uh, Let's look at this, and bear with me. We'll be kind of jumping around the passage because this is where it kind of all starts to come together. In verse 36, right after Jesus declares himself to be the bread of life and that whoever comes to him shall neither hunger nor thirst, he says, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. He said, but I, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Now, if the success of Jesus' ministry uh, rested on whether or not people believed upon hearing his words, then this makes it sound like Jesus' ministry was a failure, right? You've seen and yet you do not believe. Uh, but that's not what determines success for Jesus. Jesus' confidence doesn't rest in uh, the positive response of well-meaning people who hear his words. Jesus' confidence rests on his Father and on, on his Father's ability to carry out his Father's redemptive purposes. So in other words, we're not left on our own. We're not left to our own devices to simply believe in these words that we're, we're hearing. I'll read verse 37. It says, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. It doesn't say all that the Father gives to me will have a chance to come to me. He says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. Here, Jesus asserts that all will come. And then in verse 44, he explains how this happens. Verse 44, he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. All right, so we see here that belief in Jesus is a gift of God who draws people to himself. God grants belief as a gift through special revelation, not not dragging people in, kicking and screaming, but by wooing them, by drawing them in by the power of the Spirit to believe in the truth of who he is. And furthermore, not only does God grant belief to those who he has chosen, but he also assures that they will be preserved until the end. In verse 35, Jesus says, Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Right? When the crowd had told Jesus to give us this bread always, they were suggesting an ongoing need. But Jesus responds, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. He doesn't say whoever comes to me shall be satiated temporarily, and then when you get hungry tomorrow, come back. He says, with this bread, you shall not hunger again. Now, this doesn't mean that there's not a need for ongoing dependence on God. What this does mean uh, is that there's no longer that core emptiness there's no longer that gap inside of us that's been left by our sin because that's been filled entirely with the bread of life that is Christ. So in verse 37, Jesus says, Whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And in verse 39 he says that he will lose nothing of all that he has given me. These are clear promises from Jesus that all who come to him by the will of the Father will not be cast out. They will not, be, they will not fall away. They will not be lost. And when it says in verse 40, Uh, Jesus says that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. That's not the same thing as someone saying, I should be there in 15 minutes. (laughs) It's It's not a maybe kind of should. It's a declarative, definitive statement. All who look on the Son and believe in him will have eternal life. This is repeated in verse 47. Truly, truly, there's the truly, truly. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. This is the basis for that wonderful passage uh, that you might be familiar with out of Romans chapter 8, verses 38, 39. It says this, says, For I am sure 
that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of Christ uh, the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus, in obedience to the Father's will, will, will lose nothing of all that the Father has given to him. He will lose none who come to him. Therefore, we see, not only does God promise to draw those he will to Christ, but Jesus also promises to preserve them, keeping them in his love. Here's how one person put it. I said this, In other words, if any of them, talking about believers, talking about people who have believed in Jesus, he said this, if any of them failed to achieve this goal, it would be the son's everlasting shame. It would mean either that he was incapable of performing what the father willed him to do, or that he was flagrantly disobedient to his father. Both alternatives are unthinkable. These are promises that we get to rest in, that nothing will separate us from God's love. So let's look at what we've seen. Jesus sees this need in the crowd, and he points them to himself. Uh, even so, uh, they're blind to see him. They're unable to believe. Uh, he doesn't leave them there, though. He promises that he will draw them to himself, draw them to Christ through this free gift of grace, the true bread that comes down from heaven. As the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, we were all dead in our trespasses, unable to bring ourselves to life in God, but God, being rich in mercy, raised us up to life with Christ. As we live our lives, we know that there is this gap in our hearts, a gap that is left by our sin, a gap that leaves us discontent. And St. Augustine describes discontent this way. He said, the reason why we have the discontent we have is because our loves are disordered. The reason we have the discontent we have is because our loves are disordered. What really makes you who you are is not so much what you believe, think, or do, but what you love especially what you love most. Our loves are disordered. What we should love most, we love least. And what we should love least, we love most. This disorder is the result of the fall. When Adam and Eve chose to eat the fruit and love the fruit more than they loved God, they flipped the hourglass. They turned love upside down. And this has all kinds of ramifications. It's not wrong to love your career. But if you love your career more than you love your family, then you will destroy your family. It's not wrong to love profit. But if you love profit more than you love justice, then you will exploit your workers. It's not wrong to love your spouse. It's not wrong to love your spouse. But if if you love your spouse more than you love God, then you will suffocate your spouse. You will smother your spouse and push them away because they're sitting under a burden that they can't possibly bear. The problem is not that we love things too much. The problem is that we love things more than we love God. And listen, that's what, promise, that's, that's what God promises to do for us. This is what he had promised all along. You see, when Adam and love flipped love, uh, Adam and Eve uh, flipped love upside down, they, did, they in, a, in essence, flipped an hourglass that started ticking. Right, time started ticking. And it says in Galatians 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent Jesus to make a way back to himself, right? And in this text, we see that God promises to draw us to Christ, draw us to Jesus, the bread of life, and that that might reorder our loves so that we can love God more. And listen, when you love God supremely, then and only then will all of the other loves in your life fall into the right places. 
When you eat of this bread of life that comes from heaven, when you come to Jesus and believe on him, you will have eternal life and you will never hunger again. St. Augustine said later, he said, we are restless until we find our rest in thee. Jesus is just that. He is our contentment. He is our rest. I want to make one last observation from the text. For all that we've seen about how wrong the crowd was, uh, when we look at the text, we notice that rather than being stern uh, and rebuke-like, Jesus, as he responds to these people, uh, is remarkably gentle and loving. Right? He wants them to know who he is. He wants them to get it. Although he knows that the Father will draw to him all those whom he will, he doesn't just live his life doing nothing. He teaches. He preaches. He implores with his followers to see what is true. And I'm convinced that while simple words by themselves cannot change hearts and cannot fix the problem, words with the help of the Holy Spirit help communicate to us truths that do. See, it'd be, easy to listen, it'd be easy to listen to a text that says, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him, and think that words are important, are not important, right? It'd be easy to read this and think, it doesn't matter what I say or what I hear, because I just got to sit back and God's got to do it, right? Well, that's, that's simply not true. Words, words are important. God spoke the universe into existence with a word, right? Jesus himself is the word of God made flesh, we have the Bible. God's given us the Bible as his word, his, the instrumental means of God revealing himself to us with the help of the Holy Spirit. Jesus here in our text uses words to implore with his hearers to believe in what is true. And so we see that words are not insignificant. While words are not powerful in and of themselves, words are powerful in as much as they are connected to the truth and the power of God. So don't miss this opportunity to hear. Don't think that the words that you choose and the words that you hear are not important. Don't just sit back and wait for a sign that you might see and believe. Hear his words and ask for his help in believing. Jesus says elsewhere, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. That's a promise from Christ that when you come to him, he will hear your prayer. Jesus is the bread of life. Ask him to help believe. To paraphrase something Tim Keller once said, uh, Jesus gives us an actual offer, right? He doesn't say, uh, here is the bread of life. He says, I am the bread of life. And when you eat, if you think about it, everything that you eat must die so that you, must, so that you can live, right? Substitutionary sacrifice, that's how the food chain works. Everything that you eat must die so that you can live. When you eat bread, not only does the wheat have to die in order to be baked into bread, but as you eat the bread, you break the bread into pieces, and then you chew it and break it down even further. And so when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, this is my body broken for you, this is what he's saying. He's saying, I am God become vulnerable. I'm God become breakable so that you might feast and have life. Jesus says, I have come so that you might live. I am broken so that you can be made whole. I want to read, I'm going to close this way. I'm going to read a quote uh, from a book called The Life of Pi. Uh, you, might be, you might have heard of it. You might have heard of the movie, which made no sense. Um, but uh, uh, this book uh, is, is an excellent story. It's a story about a boy named Pi uh, who sees himself as every religion. Right? Uh, he's a Christian. He's a Muslim. He's a Buddhist. He's a Hindu. Um, and uh, this book is a story of him searching for meaning because he says, well, that's, I need to find which one is actually right. Um, this, this quote comes about a quarter of the way through the book. He had just left this Hindu temple uh, where he learned about Hinduism, and he finds himself in this Catholic church uh, with this priest named Father Martin uh, who's explaining to him Jesus, 
He's explaining God's plan in Jesus. Um, and Pi, Pi doesn't get it. Right? Pi doesn't get why Jesus would come and die for us. Um, and so after Father Martin explains things to him, this is what, this is what Pi says about, about his thoughts afterwards. He says this, I was quiet that evening at the hotel. That a God should put up with adversity, I could understand. The gods of Hinduism face their fair share of thieves, bullies, kidnappers, and usurpers. What is the Ramayana but, but the account of one long bad day for Rama? Adversity, yes. Reversals of fortune, yes. Treachery, yes. But humiliation? Death? I couldn't imagine Lord Krishna consenting to be stripped naked, whipped, mocked, dragged through the streets, and to top it off, crucified, and at the hands of mere humans to boot. I'd never heard of a Hindu god dying. When there was a roll call, all Hindu gods cried, I, with resounding voices. Brahman revealed did not go for death. Devils and monsters did, as did mortals by the thousands and millions. That's what they were there for. Matter, too, fell away. But divinity should not be blighted by death. It's wrong. The world's soul cannot die, even in one contained part of it. It was wrong of this Christian God to let his avatar die. That is tantamount to letting a part of himself die. For if the sun is to die, it cannot be fake. If God on the cross is God shamming a human tragedy, it turns the passion of Christ into the farce of Christ. The death of the sun must be real. Father Martin assured me that it was. But once a dead God, always a dead God, even resurrected. The son must have the taste of death forever in his mouth. The Trinity must be tainted by it. There must be a certain stench at the right hand of God the Father. The horror must be real. Why would God wish that upon himself? Why not leave death to the mortals? Why make dirty what is beautiful, spoil what is perfect? Love. That was Father Martin's answer. This story of Christ on the cross become vulnerable, become breakable for us that we might have life is the most beautiful story that you're ever going to hear. I ask for God's grace to believe it every day, and I invite you guys to join with me in asking God uh, for the grace to believe this truth. Jesus is the bread of life, the bread after, which, uh, after we eat of which uh, we will never hunger. Come to Jesus, and you will never hunger again. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for becoming breakable and vulnerable, for giving yourself to us that we might never hunger again. Father, reveal the truth of who you are to us. Yank us from our disbelief, Lord. Yank us from our complacency that we might feast on who you are this morning that we might be truly content, eternally content in the way that you've promised. Be gracious to us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.